so the reading is from 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let me uh, let me add my welcome to Claire's if you've um, joined us since the beginning. Um, well done for joining us. It's great to have you all here. And um, I want to start in the perhaps slightly unlikely place uh, this afternoon and thinking about the resurrection by thinking about Freddie Mercury to start off with. Um, some of you, uh, I suspect, are uh, Queen fans uh, out there today. Freddie Mercury was the lead singer of the rock, rock group Queen. And uh, he died quite a long time ago now, died in 1991. And there was an article written about him um, more recently in the Sunday Times about how he lives on in the lives of his fans. And uh, he, here's an excerpt that um, particularly caught my eye in that article. Uh, it read as follows. So Freddie is not dead. He may, not be, uh, he may not have been spotted in as many supermarkets as Elvis, but his fans are just as reluctant to let him go. Pop stars are immortal because they provide the soundtrack for other people's lives. And many figures in history live on in this kind of sense because their followers are reluctant to let them go. Their influence lives on in the lives of their followers. And some people think that it's just the same with Jesus Christ. They think that he lives on in the lives of his followers 
in a kind of um, you know moral and spiritual influence uh, kind of way. Or uh, another version of it, is, of it is that Christians are so desperate to uh, believe that there's life after death that they've created this nice fairy tale about Jesus coming back uh, from the dead to live happily ever after, because it's something that we want to believe in for ourselves too. But the, the thing is, as soon as you actually start to read the resurrection accounts in the New Testament, it quickly becomes clear that the, the first followers of Jesus Christ are claiming so much more than this uh, about Christ's resurrection. It's not just moral spiritual influence, it's not just uh, wishful thinking. You see, the stunning claim of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead in history, never to die again. And the results of that physical resurrection in history have utterly life-transforming significance for every one of us. And so today, I, I just want us to reflect for a few minutes uh, on two things. First, the evidence for the physical resurrection of Jesus. And secondly, to reflect on the life-changing significance that it can have for all of us. So first, the, the evidence. What's the evidence? Well, verses three to eight of that uh, reading we've just uh, had, uh, we get a potted summary from the Apostle Paul um, of the main areas of evidence. And there are essentially two key areas of evidence. First, there's the empty tomb. And second, there's the resurrection appearances. So let's think about the empty tomb first. All ancient historians, it must be emphasized, agree on this, that the tomb was empty. The tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. What people disagree about is why, why it was empty. Think about it. If, it hadn't, if the tomb hadn't been empty, obviously the Christian religion would never have got started in, in the first place. So anyone looking at the evidence of the resurrection has to have an account, a credible account, for why the tomb was empty. Now the Gospels and uh, Paul here in verse 4 claim that it's because he was physically raised from the dead. That's why there was no body there. And those, on the other hand, sceptical of this conclusion, have to come up with credible alternative explanations. And there have been a variety of them, some highly creative over the centuries, uh, that people have come up with since. Uh, we ha I haven't got time to run through all of them this afternoon, but here's the, here's the one that's the kind of strongest uh, amongst them uh, to, for us to kind of think about as an alternative ex explanation. And that's that the disciples stole the body and invented the resurrection to save face after the disappointing end of their teacher. But when you stop to think about it for just a moment, it just doesn't stack up this explanation. First of all, none of the disciples were actually expecting a resurrection. There simply wasn't a general Jewish expectation of a Messiah who would suffer, die, and be resurrected. And that's very much borne out in the contemporary Jewish literature of that period. There's, there, isn't, uh, there isn't an expectation of the, the resurrection of the Messiah, but just a much more general belief in the resurrection of all people in all history um, at the end of time. Secondly, if the disciples did steal a body, 
and then made up the resurrection accounts. It's completely unthinkable that they would have had women as the first witnesses of the resurrection of the resurrected Jesus. Because in the culture of the time, the witness of a woman officially counted for nothing. You simply wouldn't, if you were cooking up an account, you would, you would not uh, have women as your first witnesses if you were trying to sort of make it the most uh, credible and persuasive to people to, um, uh, to convince them. And yet, there they are in all the gospel accounts, the first witnesses of the resurrection. Uh, thirdly, uh, on this theory of disciples stealing the body, we're also required to believe that all these disciples spent the rest of their lives preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, managing to keep up this hoax amongst them, and then the majority of them all ending up dying martyrs' deaths for what they knew to be a hoax, to be a lie. It just doesn't stack up. And it has to be said, after 2,000 years, that there still remains no credible alternative explanation for the empty tomb than the one that we actually get in the Gospels and the New Testament. The second piece of evidence that Paul refers to comes in verses five to seven of the, of the reading, and, and that's the, the resurrection appearances of Christ. If we'd just been left with the evidence of the empty tomb, the death of Jesus would have remained one, you know, one of history's great unsolved mysteries. But the resurrection appearances mean that we are actually presented with positive evidence to explain the empty tomb. And including those referred to here by Paul, the New Testament writers record 11 different instances of Jesus appearing to different sets of people, in different places, at different times over a period of six weeks after his death. Now, down the ages, the main alternative explanation to these appearances uh, has, has run something like this. The, the disciples and the larger crowds of his followers were all so terribly disappointed that Jesus died that they longed so much to see him again that they all hallucinated that they saw him. But again, there are some fairly obvious problems with this uh, explanation. The first is that the Gospels re record for us a group of people who are not expecting to see a resurrected Jesus at all. They've all abandoned him by the time of his death and terribly disappointed. Secondly, hallucinations are normally highly specific to certain types of people at certain times and in certain places. However, the sheer variety of people, times and places involved in these appearances in the New Testament just rule this explanation out. And thirdly, hallucinations are also characteristically highly individual experiences but Paul here in this passage alone mentions a group of 500 people who uh, saw Jesus together at one time so and notice also what he says about this 500 in verse 6 some of them are still living though some have fallen asleep by which he means they've they've since died in other words he's referring to them as eyewitnesses uh, these resurrection appearances were not private experiences of people they were public events and there were eyewitnesses still alive who could be cross-examined by those interested to find out more. Paul's clearly so confident of his claims about these appearances of Christ that he's inviting people to go and, go and check them out, go and talk to these people. It wasn't done in a corner. 
And people who know very little about Christianity often say it's a matter of blind faith to uh, believe in Jesus Christ. But, I mean, looking at this, it doesn't seem to me that Paul is asking us to have blind faith here. He's asking us simply to examine the evidence and to follow it where it leads. And so for us today, perhaps I could just pose a question to, um, to any one of us for whom the evidence of Christ's resurrection is, is new. Will we keep examining that evidence and, and follow it where it leads? Let's now turn to our second uh, question, which is the, what's the meaning of the resurrection? And I want to focus on three things it, uh, it means uh, for us. The first thing it means is that Jesus really is God. Paul Daniels, the uh, magician, was quoted in the media a few years back, uh, saying that Jesus was just a very talented uh, uh, magician on a par with any great magician such as himself. And uh, unsurprisingly, the satirical news show, Have I Got News For You, picked up on this. And uh, they featured his remarks on the program. And uh, Paul Merton suggested that perhaps we should take Paul Daniels at his word and crucify him to see if he might resurrect himself. The, the thing is, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it, it, it's, it's more than just a conjuring trick of some local Palestinian magician. It, it just isn't the kind of thing. You can't fake your own resurrection um, and convince, convince people. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes a variety of claims to be God. He accepts worship. He says he's going to judge the world. He takes the Old Testament name of God upon his own lips, and he claims to be one with God the Father. Now, of course, anyone can make those kind of claims for themselves, but only Jesus can back them up. His resurrection confirms that he really is who he claims to be. So the resurrection means any guessing games about God are over for the person who kind of says, oh, well, I wish I had your faith. You know, here, here, we, here we have evidence laid before us of who he is. We don't need to keep looking for God within our own imagination or in nature or in philosophy because the God who made the universe actually became a human being. And he came to us. He gave final proof of this through his resurrection from the dead. Second, the resurrection of Christ means that our sins have been paid for. Uh, those of you who were with us for the um, service before Easter, uh, we reflected on the significance of the darkness and the cry of Jesus Christ from, from the cross that as Jesus died, God's judgment upon sin incredibly was coming down upon him instead of us. And in verse 17 of our passage today, Paul puts it negatively. If Christ had remained dead, then it would have shown that he could not pay for our sins. We would, in Paul's words, still be in our sins. But Christ's resurrection from the dead proves that he has successfully paid for our sins because the penalty of sin in the Bible is death and death could not hold him. 
So it means whoever we are, wherever we've been in our lives, whatever we've done in our lives, here today, on April the 21st, 2020, we can know that our sins are truly forgiven because Jesus Christ died and, and because he rose from the dead. The third thing his resurrection means is that we can have real hope in the face of death. And this is, of course, particularly significant to us at the moment. Coronavirus has reminded us that we're neither invincible nor are we immortal. And every day we're reminded of the fact of death more forcibly than usual as we're told the latest uh, death toll on the news. And perhaps some of us have lost someone known to us, even close to us, during these past weeks. Now, I think a very small number of people in the world would insist that this life is all there is, all there is and there's no point wasting any more time hoping for life after death. The vast majority of us cannot dismiss this deep longing we have for a life beyond this one as just a genetic misfiring, a side effect of our advancing intelligence. The majority of us know deep down that we were made for eternal life. But the funny thing is we don't want to think about it for a whole host of reasons. And sometimes perhaps it's because we fear that looking into it might actually change the way we, we live uh, in this life. So in normal times, we try to avoid thinking about it by distracting ourselves with busyness. But at the moment, it's harder to do that. Uh, the resurrection of Christ means that we can have real hope in the face of death. We don't have to avoid thinking about it or despair when we do think about it. Because Christ has been through death in history and lives again, so can we if we put our trust in him. And that is the great truth of verse 20, the, the very end of our reading today. Because Christ has risen from the dead, he is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits were the first fruits to be harvested in a crop. They were the clear sign that the rest of the harvest was just about to follow. They were the first instalment. And Christ is the first to be resurrected. And then all those who belong to him will follow. I've always uh, liked the way C.S. Lewis um, writes about the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ in his book, Miracles. And uh, this is what he says um, uh, about the, the meaning of his resurrection. He has forced open a door which had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. So if this afternoon you, you find yourself still burdened by guilt or fearful of death, can I encourage you to put your trust in the one who has successfully paid for your sins? And put your trust in the one who can take you all the way through death and into eternal life. And can I also invite us to just imagine for a moment how we might live our lives differently in this present moment 
if we were really convinced that in Christ we have a sure hope of resurrection from the dead, because surely it changes everything. The way we view our work, the way we view our money, our relationships, all the things we live for. With that sure hope of the future secured, imagine how we could be liberated to be such powerful forces of resurrection life in the present, in, in, pol in national politics, in regional politics, in local politics, in our, in our local community. It truly liberates us to, to stop living for ourselves and to turn outwards to, um, to other people because we know the key verdict on our, on our lives is already in. And finally, isn't it also a wonderful message of hope at this precise time to share with our friends, our family and our colleagues? Why don't we pray together now and ask for God's help that we might take this to heart ourselves and that we might have that chance to share this wonderful hope with others. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that because you brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, we can know that he is both Lord and Christ, that our sins are truly paid for, and that we can have real hope in the face of death. In your mercy and by your spirit, please enable us to put our trust in him, and please enable us to carry this wonderful news to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.